Welcome to season three of the Gutology podcast. My name's Ollie. I'm the founder of Gutology. And if you're listening to this for the first time, the whole sort of idea around Gutology is to, to give people access to, to functional medicine for people that really want to get to the root of their sort of uh, digestive issues or chronic health issues. Um, and the Gutology podcast is about helping you understand your health more and what is so exciting about season three is we're on a journey around the world um, and I feel so lucky to be doing this that I just get to speak to experts in their field about how your gut health affects the way you think your mood um, you know your your uh, immunity to to disease and um, so much more than that and so we're going to be speaking to some fantastic experts from the world of functional medicine in oncology and depression and today uh, FMTs. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, now, we moved studios back in uh, December last year. There's been so much change going on. And um, really sadly, I, I lost part of the audio file. Uh, to this uh, interview with Andrea. Now, luckily, it's only my side of the file. It's all there, but you may notice that I sound a little bit more... Um, uh, the quality's not quite as good as, as Andrea. Uh, but I just thought this was such a fascinating episode and I learned so much from it that I still really wanted to share it with you. So, without further ado, let's kick off Season 3 of the Gutology Podcast. So welcome to season three of the Gutology podcast. We're taking a, a tour around the world this time, meeting some of the, the leading experts that are really pushing the boundaries on what we understand about the microbiome and uh, our, our kind of understandings of functional medicine and where it's going. And I, I think probably out of all of the interviews that we've, we've set up for this series, I'm most excited about talking to Andrea Macbeth. I'm going to let her introduce who she is and what she does in a second. But I think before we start this conversation, it's really, really important to explain what FMT is, because having that context um, is going to be really, really important for this conversation. So firstly, Andrea, thanks so much for hanging out with me. Yeah, absolutely. You're out in, in, in Portland, so it's early in the morning there. It's late in the evening here. Yeah, it's actually sunny and beautiful today, so I'm really excited. We don't get it. We mostly get rain, and so sunshine is very special. Uh, so, Andrea, just briefly, just just tell us what your what your background is to start with. Yeah, I will try to be concise, but feel free to focus me. I am a researcher and think of myself as a scientist, and always have. And I studied biochemistry and molecular biology. Uh, started and worked in part of a, a PhD program in biomedical engineering and really was thinking a lot about how cancer cells communicate with each other. And in the middle of that experience, my sister was actually diagnosed with the same kind of cancer I had been studying. And so I had just enough knowledge to become her advocate as we navigated the medical system here in the U.S. for her to to be treated for her leukemia. And after two years of living in a hospital and seeing how that worked from the other side of the fence, I was really at a place where going back into the lab to make cancer drugs didn't feel uh, like the right thing to do for me in my journey. And so I was looking for a way to prevent this and prevent it from happening. She's in remission. She's been in remission for 10 years. Um, but I wanted to 
I just didn't want to do it again. So I became a naturopathic physician, which is like a functional wellness doctor in the US. So I have a full license and scope, but we've really focused on the prevention and functional components. And that education was meaningful in that I feel more empowered now to help patients either treat or prevent those chronic diseases that can lead to things like cancer um, over time and really do that through the gut microbiota. And I kept my, you know, cell communication hat and I have a very wonderful mentor from when I was doing research who was a microbiology um, kind of background person. And we talked a lot about trying to understand why nutrition mattered. And the microbiota really provided that mechanism of action. And so when I graduated and started practicing and helping patients with gut dis-ease and autoimmunity and kind of chronic stuff, it was really exciting to have an opportunity to work with fecal transplant. And then from there, I've kind of evolved to doing both hats of science and research about the gut microbiota to explain these tools we have that we know matter, but we didn't understand why before. So why is it that vegetables are so important? Why is it that environmental toxins matter? Why is it that stress and the gut-brain axis is so powerful when thinking about your diarrhea? So really, you know, kind of foundational things. So that's how I got involved kind of in a, in a circuitous way to working with patients and, and doing fecal transplant and now doing a biotech spinoff based on that technology to look at consumer wellness and, you know, make poop face cream. So <laughs> essentially, I, I think that probably FMT, if you've never heard about it before, is probably going to change the world as we know it. It's certainly going to flip the medical and healthcare system completely on its head. But before we kind of get to that point, let's just explain in its absolutely rudimental form what a fecal microbiome transplant is. Yeah. So it's the delivery of healthy stool, which we can talk about how we define what a healthy stool is, to the colon of a recipient patient who has microbiota disease or dysbiosis. And, you know, really in a most simple way, it's taking poop from a healthy person, making sure they don't have infectious disease, putting it in a blender, and then delivering it via colonoscopy or orally to that patient so that their microbiome is transformed in some and, way. And, and if you're if you're listening to this right now and you think, God, these these are these far out Americans doing this wacky stuff. Um, we do actually have it here in the UK, actually, in its primary use at the moment. It's um, um, and you're going to be able to, to correct me if I go off track here, Andrea, but um, there's a, an infection which can be quite common in older people, certainly in, hospital, uh, in hospitals, colostrum difficile, if I pronounce that. Um, and um, they usually treat that with antibiotics. And in recent years, um, they've been using um, FMT transplants and have, have had really um, quite remarkable uh, results because they're not having people like on antibiotics where they relapse and they get the infection again. Um, they seem to have pretty much almost 100% recovery rate with a, with a decent FMT. And that's happening right now here in the UK. But that feels like just the sort of tip of the iceberg with what the potential treatments are. Yeah, I think I will I will add to that that C. diff is what we call it for short, Clostridium difficile or Clostridius difficile. They changed the name recently. Um, 
is an opportunistic infection. So you get it when you go to the hospital and you take antibiotics and your ecosystem gets wiped out. So like you're clear cut and this invasive species comes in. The problem with C. diff is that it has become antibiotic resistant. So there are actually people who have this really bad causes, you know, up to 30 plus diarrhea events a day makes people really sick. Um, and they aren't responding to antibiotics at all. And so it was sort of, we got to that point where we're at the end of the pharmacy cabinet. What are we going to try? And a handful of researchers and, and physicians looked into ancient history because this has been used since fourth century China in reference to yellow soup. It's a standard of care in veterinary medicine. I'm not sure and how said, appealing okay, well, what do we have yellow to lose? soup sounds to me. I mean, I just, I know, I, I can't help myself because it's, the poop jokes never end in my job, but you know, it's really powerful. And so when this started to come back into use in the, you know, 2008, 2010 early period, it was like you said, you know, anywhere from 80 to 98% effective at treating people who were otherwise didn't have any treatment. And that is where this revolution has come from looking at the importance of our microbiota because it's very counterintuitive to want to give somebody poop to make them better because we associate poop with infectious disease. Um, but it turns out just like there's only a handful of bad bacteria and then we have trillions of commensals. There's, there's so much important stuff in stool that we don't even, we're at the tip of the iceberg of understanding. And so what happened was we saw that it was really useful for C. diff. And clinical trials started to happen, looking at it in a whole bunch of different applications. And it was, it's really um, created a new paradigm in microbiome research to say, well, if we give somebody fecal transplant and their autism symptoms improve two years out, what is going on? And this means the gut microbiota is playing a really important role in all these other diseases, response to chemotherapy and immuno checkpoint inhibitors, metabolic disease, liver disease, all these things we didn't used to think were relevant to the gut. And so that's, I think, where the fecal transplant has really not just provided a new perspective, but a new avenue to look at how we can treat disease in the future. And, and like you said, flip our paradigm of medicine and a, you know, one bug, one disease kill and replace model on its head. And I think one of the areas that's so interesting about FMT is that the higher up the chain of experts you get, the people who I speak to who, who you know, are really at the top of their game, really, quite honestly, a lot of them are saying like, you know, people that have studied the microbiome for years are saying, well, the more I learn, almost the less that I know. Like it's, there's so many trillions of different bacteria. We don't truly understand the ways that these bacteria completely interact with each other what they what what relationships they have to certain conditions and things like that what we do see is is that if you take probiotics and of course probiotics have become like a billion pound industry now but actually probiotics can be really really effective in short-term treatments and have positive effects but there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of evidence when it comes to the long-term impact of taking a short-term antibiotic however when you look at some of the data, or certainly some of the data that I've seen with FMT, some people are having transplants and they're having testing done a year later at their microbiome analysis. And it's looking remarkably similar 12 months, 18 months on from the donors, you know, as if they've sort of colonized somebody else's microbiome 
inside them. And that just seems staggering. Yeah. I mean, again, it was really surprising. All of the data that came out of FMT has been really exciting and surprising. And we don't know exactly what colonization is doing versus shifting native environments and providing nutrients. I think I think of the microbiota and when I think of the microbiota, you know, the poop is a piece of that as another organ system. So just like we have a heart and a, you know, liver and a brain, we have this organ system that's interfacing with our brain and our immune system, the neuroimmunomodulatory impacts of this organ system are far more profound than we thought. And it's the tip of the iceberg because, you know, all good science is like you're at the edge of the cliff. And every time you learn more, you see further into the cliff uh, chasm of, of what we don't know. But what we are seeing is is the fecal transplant is an example of how profound these bacteria can be. And it's probably not just that they're engrafting or recolonizing. It's that they're changing the way the immune system and our brain is interfacing with our native microbiota. And we're, you know, changing gene transcription and, and, you know, for in layman's terms, imagine that you have a, a forest and you put in some new trees, but then you completely change the environment too. That's going to change the way the forest looks 10 years from then, not just the like different species you put in. And I think that's why fecal transplant is unique is it's not just one or two bacteria. It's a whole bunch of bacteria and viruses and fungi and all their molecules they use to communicate with each other and some of the fiber that comes from food. And we are seeing, you know, patients report reduction in their suicidality and depression and anxiety with fecal transplant. And that is, again, speaking to this bigger organ system that's getting shifted and changed. But, you know, we can think about it analogous to lifestyle changes. When you fundamentally change your diet and exercise routine, your gut changes too. And they're, you know, we're talking about kind of that scale of, of global shifting of an ecosystem organ. It's, you're doing lots of standardized as in, you know, um, uh, the way that people are getting the FMTs at the moment, these transfusions, they're having them uh, like, uh, uh, what would you call it? I always think of a delicate way of saying it, but like uh, an enema, essentially. Yeah, I'm. we work with oral capsules, but definitely patients have enemas and colonoscopic so, delivery so too. So this is interesting then. So when, when, when you work with the oral capsules, you take a, a sample of the original stool and then that's sterilized in some way, is it? So, okay. So before we move on to that, so that is, conventional FMT is the whole product, you know, washed or blended or smushed in a baggie. Uh, there's all these different things, but it's alive. And it's just screened. What we have done and what we're doing in my group, my Thena biotech startup, is looking past the live components to sterilizing what basically what happened was we have this bacterial pellet we use for FMT and said, well, live bacteria and viruses still pose an infectious disease risk and COVID happened and we couldn't provide FMT and we've been thinking about this before, but when COVID happened, we couldn't provide FMT to people who were dying from C. diff. We said, well, what do we have to lose if we sterilize this so we know the COVID is dead and all the other things? There might still be enough 
active components in the form of metabolites that bacteria make and the fertilizer and compost pieces, that it's still going to shift the microbiota in a similar way. And there was a precedent for this, but nobody had separated out the virus piece. Um, and so that is kind of what I think of as the next generation and next evolution of fecal transplant is what understanding why it works so well and then figuring out, you know, who are the good bacteria and taking those and making drugs out of them, which is happening in the U.S. And then in our case, taking the whole thing and knowing that it has all these components that are going to be ecosystem supportive and then heat killing that and turning it into a powder that we can use in consumer products, kind of like a really um, robust wellness nutrient. So it's, so that's kind of the direction we're going. And we think the future of understanding how powerful FMT is has to come from us understanding what the metabolites and molecules and neuroimmunomodulation is going on so that we can develop therapies and, and products that are functionally useful to patients to add another tool to the tool. I suppose when it comes down to sort of sterilizing and removing things from it, it's going to take you a really, really long time to understand what is there and what isn't there from the, from the, the products, I guess. That's the tricky thing, right? Yeah. I have a lot, I have a team working very hard on it. So, so at the end of this, let's say like 10 years from now, what is the idea that that people are going to be able to like we take a probiotic take an fmt pill and and where will that because obviously we need to think about the donors of these things right like the if yeah. you're if you're yeah. sick the idea let's say you've got c diff right and you're lying in a hospital bed and they're saying to you right the antibiotics aren't working the, the 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 risk the cross risk be benefit is just a no brainer, isn't it? You you're going to say, look, the average guy that eats three burgers a week um, has a few pints of of nice English bitter. We we drink it warm here for some reason. Um, oh, I miss it. I know. I love I love English um, beer. You're going to say, yeah, that give it give me his microbiome because right now that gives me a. You're thinking so short term about solving your problem. But when it comes to you struggle with IBS or, you know, whatever, and you just want to improve your microbiome, surely you're going to be thinking, well, I want the, the well-supplemented. The magic super yeah, the vegan athlete who has no health history in his family. So how do you, well, okay, so talk to me. Yeah. Who is the perfect right. donor? Yeah. So we have thought about donors and defining health for a long time. So one of the exciting things about fecal transplant is traditionally you only cared about whether the patient had infectious disease risk or not. So all the screening was like, do you have risk for disease? But we being naturopaths in Portland wanted to go beyond that and define health. And so we screened donors and said, you know, were you vaginally born? Were you breastfed? Those things impact the microbiota. We don't know exactly how, but we know that that would be more beneficial in theory. Um, you know, have you had major exposures to pesticides and um, environmental toxins in your lifetime? Were you born on a farm? Did you have siblings? Did you have a dog? Uh, what is your lifestyle like now? Do you exercise regularly? Are you mental health is a really big part of this. So no anxiety, no depression, 
um, mindfulness practices, people who are really conscientious about their diet to the point of we actually all of our donors are omnivores, which is interesting. Um, but they are omnivores in the like Michael Pollan sense. So they eat very sustainable, you know, fancy organic vegetables and meats and really high fiber and high plant diversity. Um, we care a lot about their lifestyle habits. So we ask them whether they drink out of water bottles, plastic water bottles, because that can increase your uh, microplastics in your stool. So there's a lot of things that go into us defining health. It makes finding donors really difficult, but when we do, you know, they're magical. So, so unicorn, yeah, these poopers. unicorn poopers, right? So how, I'm, so they, what, live in a reasonably close proximity to the clinic? I'm assuming, is that? Right. So one of the cool things we have done, and I think, I, well, we just, we have a provisional patent. So it's all published now, what we do. Um, but actually what we did is when we said, okay, we're going to be killing this anyways, fresh poop is important if you want to keep the bacteria alive, but we don't have to have fresh poop anymore because we, um, our donors were going to be heat killing their stool anyways, so they can freeze them. And so we actually don't have to have donors that are just local. Um, so they can, so they can, we, they, so they might like keep their stool sample live in Colorado in the mountains. And so how often would they in... send s samples every couple it's, weeks? It's every day they're, they're storing in like a freezer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming they get paid for it. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun. We, I mean, we think a lot about how exciting, we're, we're on the cusp of a revolution of postbiotics is what we call these. So there's prebiotics, which is the fiber. There's the bacteria, which are probiotics. And then the postbiotics are the thing they make. And what we're working with is kind of a, a understanding of what these postbiotics are and how they impact health and then adding in prebiotics. And at some point we may add in probiotics too, so that they're all working together in this complementary again ecosystem so the I, to modulate the, the idea gut. being that whether and i know that there'll, there'll be you know multiple people going at this from different angles so some people are going to be saying long term mm -hmm. like we're going to develop a um i think realistically for fmt really to go mainstream it's got to come in a pill right nobody no mainstream person is going to go and have like an enema they're going to be skeptical of that right that's like a pretty major thing to do so we're, we're thinking that long term if this industry is going to really really pick up it's going to be based around pills we're assuming yeah and i you know and and you may disagree with me but i am skeptical that fmt itself and it's kind of 1.0 form what we think of as just the stool the blender that's been screened is ever going to be the end consumer product i think it's going to have to be some iteration where we can control for components and understand mechanisms and it's going to be a fractionation or a sterilized version like what we're doing or um you know just the spore forming molecules like some of the drug companies are developing i think we're going to use stool as a a new gold rush to discover 
how this organ is interacting. And there's going to be many components that we start to identify. And we see that with the probiotic industry. A lot of the kind of 2.0 probiotics are coming out of stool. We're starting to understand what they're doing and what they're making and using that to develop. So I don't know if FMT in a conventional sense will ever be ubiquitous but I'm assu- unless it's for specific I'm things. assuming the idea is though is let's say in let's say 30 years from now you uh you have an accident like we see lots of people that come into the clinic right they they have an accident of some kind they're put on antibiotics or they've had a they've had they've been on hormones for a long time or they've had a really poor diet and then suddenly something happens where they're something around their digestive health really gets knocked out of whack and they have symptoms from that, whether that be digestive symptoms or they have skin problems like psoriasis or lethargy Mm -hmm. or whatever. The idea would be is that then you essentially could do a short-term treatment of some kind of uh, postbiotic, as you're calling it, and that essentially could reharmonize your microbiome. Absolutely. And I think it's going to be a combination where the cool thing about this is it's not a one size fits all. We know that, right? Everybody's a little different. And you'll identify where the dysbiosis came from and what's kind of the underlying cause. And you can attack it with a therapy plus a dietary shift plus mental health because the vagus nerve is so important in resetting, especially if it's trauma related. Um and trauma can mean emotional or physical trauma. Um, and all of those are going to contribute for us. I think the the next big leap is going to come between now and that 30-year vision you have, and I think it's probably closer to 10 years, honestly, is going to be a different way to measure the microbiota or put the sequencing together with like serum metabolomics. So we have a better idea of what the functional readout is we need better pictures we need a color version of the black and white picture we're getting so, right sorry, now just, just to understand that then so essentially what you're saying is is that right now it's almost like looking up at a telescope to the universe and we're like there are trillions of stars and we kind of know that there are black holes but we don't really know how gravity right. interacts with each other what we're saying right now is basically we don't fully understand the microbiome. So we need to, the, actually, the acceleration in technology that needs to happen is the diagnostics of understanding what does the whole microbiome yeah. look, out, look like, how, and, and I guess that might be something along the lines of when somebody has chronic fatigue syndrome, we see these changes in the microbiome, and therefore we know that this type of FMT pill, or postbiotic as we call it, would be tailored for, for different conditions potentially. Mm-hmm. And it's it's less about the, well, I believe, and that's, this is, we can argue, but it's less about identifying the kind of species that are in the colon and more about what their metabolites look like in the bloodstream and in the brain. I, I just listened, I was on a European-based conference right before this call, and they were talking about the difference in microbial signatures in people with obesity and diabetes and different organs. And so you can see bacteria in the liver and in the adipose of people with diseases. And those bacteria are different in people that don't have those diseases. And they're creating metabolites that are are impacting our whole system. Microbiota is one organ or one ecosystem on a planet of human body. But the whole organ 
you know, universe of, of us, the holobiont of the human has the same climate. And so if my climate in my brain is one thing, it's going to be impacting the climate of the organ of my gut microbiota and vice versa. And so we have to understand how that is related. And I think the future of that is looking in blood, not stool, or urine, which is another urine metabolites, or combination of all three to identify who needs what shifts. And so work we're doing is clinically correlating whole genome sequencing of stool with serum metabolomics to then decide, you know, if your serum metabolites and your gut microbiota profile look pretty good, the shift probably doesn't need to come from a postbiotic or an FMT or a probiotic. It needs to come from um, some other modality, maybe it's sleep cycle or, or mental health or another source of vitamins uh, rather than just microbiome restoration. But I deal with patients who have had 200 rounds of antibiotics for chronic UTIs. They need a whole ecosystem rebuild, right? And that is going to be IBS is a catch-all. And it's like distinguishing what is the cause of the IBS is going to be a big part of this. And as a functional practitioner, is it the case where somebody comes to you and let's say they've been on antibiotics for like 10 years because of a recurrent, you know, infection or something like that? Is it, I'm I'm sure there are some areas where with a lot of work and a lot of changes in diet and a lot of, of the existing treatments that you have now, you can make significant changes. But the idea that this would just speed up the process completely. Yeah, and I think with better understanding comes less of a, a guesswork yeah, like a and trial and yeah. error. Mm-hmm. And 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 my favorite part about all this work is it then is like, wait, diet does matter. Exercise does matter. Mental health does matter because we can measure it just like we can measure these oral therapeutics. And I think it brings the conversation back to a functional whole medicine approach because it's not a magic silver bullet, but it is something that helps people pass that plateau. And it takes a little bit of that. And I don't know how your chronic disease story was, but mine, I'm, I have ankylosing spondylitis and arthritis and I've had it my whole life. Uh, you know, it's like two steps forward and one step back and two steps forward and one step back. And then you plateau and you feel like you're doing everything right. And you just can't get there. I think the microbiota therapies are going to be what get people past that plateau and have less backsliding because you're stabilizing that immune neuro interface, gut interface. I think one thing that that is going to be really, really interesting as far as this transition goes is that, you know, right now, the way that the healthcare system is structured is that we have pharmaceutical companies, which, you know, we have a healthcare system, which essentially, we're very lucky here in the UK, we have the National Health Service, but essentially, it's a life saving service. It's not a well being service there, that it's geared up, really, that if you've got some, you've got an illness, they'll treat a symptom rather than really try and get to the root cause of it. And of course, off the back of that, we have a healthcare industry that makes a huge amount of money, pharmaceutical companies, from from selling those drugs. So what I'm really struggling to see is, as this as as FMT evolves, that disruption that could potentially could cause huge disruption of the pharmaceutical industry. Do you think what will happen is that the 
pharmaceutical companies will adopt and take interest in this? Or do you think it's something that potentially will be resisted? No, I think they're definitely going to take interest and have components of this. I think the the it doesn't fit neatly into the drug paradigm because we're talking about ecology. Um, I am hopeful that it shifts everything for the better. So we have better targeted drugs with less side effects because they're you know, human evolved molecules from bacteria. I also think it's not going to be a one size fits all. So we're going to have to come up with other ways to think about these. And it's really going to challenge public health because yes, the health system is a life saving system, but there also is public health and public health is going to have to start to say, well, food systems matter. Agriculture matters. We have to think about sustainable agriculture because it turns out the micronutrients in our food system directly impacts the gut microbiota, which can lead to diabetes. And I, it creates a more coherent story for us to understand how all these different environmental, you know, air quality, water quality, and food systems are just as important. And if you're going to be spending billions of dollars in understanding how to make drugs, you can't then give somebody something toxic right on top of that drug and expect your clinical trial to work. And so it incentivizes everybody to start thinking about these ecosystems to make the single components work better and to, you know, from a public health perspective, start to mitigate this epidemic of both chronic and then infectious disease that we've seen with COVID so that we can continue to evolve. I mean, the microbiota is really cool because it evolves a lot faster than we do. And I think it might be, you know, our shining hope in the future to not end up the way of, um, you know, climate change macroscopically is posing the same kind of risk that our microscopic mass extinction of our microbiota is. And so once we start to see that this ecosystem is, you know, 90% depleted in a Western model compared to historical tribal uh, hunter-gatherers, we can see the same kind of climate issues here that need to be addressed on all scales. So I am, there's my rosy opinion about how we can all sort of work together to make the world a better place, which I know may be naive and I'm open to that criticism. But I think the microbiota and fecal transplant and its efficacy and things we never thought would matter and understanding a whole new ecosystem model of a organ is going to change the way we think about health. Because we know SSRIs work really well for some people and not for others. And we didn't know why. And now we kind of have a hunch that it's because of the microbiota. And metformin is a drug for, you know, diabetes and insulin sensitivity. And we didn't really know why it worked. And it probably has to do with the microbiota. And if we can start to understand these, pharma is going to be incentivized to create better products that also modulate the gut microbiota and keep your microbiota um, ready to respond if you need a chemotherapy for your cancer, right? Yeah, this idea that actually it can be used as a supporting mechanism for traditional treatments, I think is, you know, and we've seen that, haven't we, with clinical studies that are coming out of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, recovery rates or, or, or uh, for people that have been treated for certain cancers based on the diversity of their microbiome can affect, you know, whether mm-hmm. people have successful chemotherapy treatments or not. Right, right. now, 
what can people access? I mean, you'll know more about in America than certainly here in the UK. But say someone's listening to this right now and they're saying, well, I was on antibiotics for 10 years. I, I'm going to go and get FMT. What would your advice be to them? Well, you can't. And there's just a lot of risk to do. I mean, you're better off finding a good functional practitioner to help you rebuild your microbiota with the tools we do have that we know are safe. Um, there's not infrastructure to make safe FMT for people unless you have C. diff really in the U.S. Um, you know, short of that, there are probiotics and nutritional and and, you know, I think this gives more weight to some of those more basic things about restoring the microbiota. Um, and then finding, again, a wellness holistic practitioner, nutritionist, functional medicine doc, stuff like what you do with gutology, I think is, is something that FMT is giving weight to, right? You don't need the FMT necessarily. You need to really focus on rebuilding the diversity of your gut microbiota. And we, we can do that through diet and herbs and lifestyle. And as science progresses, we will start to see tools based on the microbiota, but we're not quite there yet. So what do you think? What I mean, do you I know... think the time? What give me a give me a timeline? You you're an insider here and you must have an idea in your head where you're going to go right I reckon in in this amount we're going to have something that is that is potentially game changing. What would you what what do you think? I mean, I'm hopeful in the next three to five years we'll see a whole new class of drugs based on metabolites. So I know there's a lot of drugs in in the pipeline in the U.S. I have a I've met these really cool guys that are working on a drug for the kind of arthritis I had as a kid. Um, I was really sick. I had JRA, like rheumatoid arthritis. And they have a drug that's really effective and really low side effects that's based off of a breast milk derived bacterial metabolite postbiotic. And as those drugs start to get approved and work and are safe, we are going to see a huge evolution in how we look at small molecule therapeutics. Just in the same way, I think we're seeing a, a, you know, the mRNA vaccine is going to change the way we think about vaccinations. Uh, and we have gene therapies. You know, the, the pharma model is not perfect because those are all really expensive things. So I think that's going to be one class. That's a proof of concept. And then we're going to look for all these other natural forms of probiotics and postbiotics. And we're going to start to be able to say, okay, you know, what we're doing is we're taking our um, sterilized FMT stool that's turning into a powder and we're putting it in a face cream for, for, you know, non-cystic acne and, and non-medical applications in, in skincare because we know it changes the microbiota ecosystem. And that's going to provide a proof of concept to think about it as an application in other places. So essentially, you know, in, in, it sometimes comes somebody's got sinusitis and there may well be a spray that they can change their nasal microbiome mm -hmm. with. Right. Mm -hmm. I, 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 and, and people are doing that. I mean, Mother Dirt is an example of a probiotic spray that people use topically 
Um, and sometimes they spray it up their nose. The company can't tell you to do <laughs> so that. So what, what is but, it? It's called mother know, dirt. It's a it's a probiotic in a spray. And you know, and we are going to make a postbiotic skincare line, and we are going to see postbiotics in um, cosmetics and in supplements and dietary supplements. It's going to be hard to kind of separate out the marketing, but I think it shows a bigger shift towards, you know, that's going to happen first. And then we're going to see these drugs coming out of that. And, and again, my biggest hope is that it changes the conversation around public health. So, um, I know that you're tight on time, so we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up. But one thing I would love to ask you, and I always do this with anyone that I speak to on, on, on the podcast is, is two questions and I'll put you on the spot here. One question is what is one thing in general that you avoid that could be negative for your gut health, just like a lifestyle thing. And it's so interesting because you are still dealing with a kind of health issue. So you have to be, I imagine right. really cautious mm-hmm. about your diet. What's one thing that you try to avoid? I have filtered water um, because chlorine is part of the tap. I have really good quality water, generally, but I, you know, Martin Blazer is a scientist who wrote a book called Missing Microbes. If you've never read it, it's one of my favorites. Um, And we think about kind of the things we're exposed to every day that are constantly going to be knocking down our microbiota. And for me, you know, I don't eat conventional products with a lot of antibiotics. So I I guess I avoid conventional meat products and and animal products because those are pretty high in antibiotics Um, and preservatives and pesticides. And I avoid kind of I have like a hippie Portland diet, but <laughs> well, one of the biggest things Portland, I do, right? <laughs> yeah, one of the biggest things I do beyond just like my healthy diet is drink filtered water that doesn't have chlorine and plastic in it. And I do that by having filtered water that's not in plastic bottles and I don't hate plastic. And and I think that's an underappreciated component of microbiota health. Okay, I love that. That's a great tip. So one thing that you that you add in to your diet that for anyone listening right now would be like, huh, okay. Yeah, no, I could do that. And it's, you know, it's accessible. Well, so many vegetables. So variety. (laughs) I mean, I try to eat, I, I try to eat and sometimes choke down even because I'm not the best cook. But if I have a giant pot of, you know, greens, I know that I am feeding my microbiota and I put some salt on it and I just am like, oh, this is <laughs> so good for my microbiota. <laughs> in heaven. Yeah, I mean, I, I think diversity is in plants is the most important thing we could be doing. We are chronically deplete in fiber some people with, you know, bloating and SIBO have trouble with that. But if you can find a, you know, plant diverse way to consume phytochemicals, like I drink herbal tea every day. I have, because it's a way for me to get phytochemical diversity, plants into my gut. Um, and I make a smoothie every day that has a carrot and a cucumber and some kale and some berries and I don't really love smoothies, but I know that that's a good way for me to get plant diversity. Um, and so it's not, I, I joke that, you know, a 30 minute cook chopping vegetable diet is going to be the future. It doesn't matter what you're eating. As long as you're spending 30 minutes chopping something that's a vegetable, you're going to be 
doing more than any one thing you could pick. Um, if people want to find out about what you're doing with Flora Medicine and how, how do they connect with you and learn more about it? Yeah, totally. We have a website. It's floramedicine.com, F-L-O-R-A. Um, and we try to create that as sort of the the interface to our skincare development. Um, we're going to be posting publications related to the research partnership we have there. I teach. And so some of my lectures are there. Um, and that's probably the best way to interface with us. We have a clinic. We have practitioners in Idaho and Oregon and Washington, um, in the U S if it's people looking for healthcare or functional wellness, kind of educational consults. And then as we're going to develop these products, we're really hoping to have a skin serum, um, to market in the next couple months with the sterilized poo powder in it, which my collaborators hate when I call it poop face cream, but you can't make up the shit. You just can't make it up. Well, look, I'm very excited about this yellow soup. Um, Andrea, I'm just so happy there are people like you in the world doing what you're doing because this is changing, has the potential to, to change medicine as we know it. Well, ditto. I mean, we have to be, you have to be communicating it, right? Like I don't do this on my own. So people like you are how I help communicate to the world. So I appreciate that a lot too. And the fact that you can create a brand out of gutology, I think reflects people's want of this. So keep doing what you're doing too. And can we catch up like a year from now? And when we, sure, and we'll totally. have a yeah, time, I'd love to. maybe we can even do it in person and we'll see how far, That'd be so much how fun. far it's come, you know? Yeah. All right. On next week's episode, it's all going to be about how gut health impacts mood and uh, depression with Professor, uh, Professor Jack Gilbert. I'm so excited uh, for this episode. In the meantime, if you're listening to this and you're suffering with digestive issues or health concerns and you want to partner with a, a, a functional practitioner who's got experience in your particular symptoms, just head over to gutology.co.uk or just Google uh, Gutology and our amazing team will help you on your way. All right, I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.